Thank you, Ken. And if you're uh, visiting with us, we welcome you to the President's class. We hope you enjoy it. I hope you feel at home. Uh, we are in a study of the Gospel of Luke, so take your Bible and open up to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And today we're going to come to that section which has commonly been called the silent years of Jesus' life. These would be the years between his, his birth and his baptism, 30 years there, where we really don't know too much about what he did. Uh, we have no accounts, except for one, of his activities during that 30-year period. Somebody asked me today about Joseph, what happened to him, and uh, most likely Joseph had died by the time Jesus was 30 or 32, 33 years of age because Jesus leaves Mary with uh, his disciple John. So we uh, assume that Joseph was uh, was dead. But we know that Joseph, being a carpenter, probably, probably know what he did during his lifetime. There was a city four miles uh, west of Nazareth of Galilee called Sepphoris. And there was a rebellion during that time when Jesus was a kid. We know this much. And the Romans came in and basically not only wiped out the town, but wiped out the people, but wiped out the town. Just totally destroyed the entire town. And uh, so that town had to be rebuilt. It took several years to be rebuilt. Most likely, Joseph and Jesus himself were conscripted to go over there and build that town with probably thousands of other construction workers. So that's what Jesus did during those years. So we know that he became probably very strong and had to do a lot of manual labor. He and Joseph were part of a, of a peasant group. Ninety percent of the people that lived in Palestine, uh, Palestine were peasants. There was a two percent ruling class. There was the emperor and two percent of the Roman elites. They were a Roman ruling class. And then the countries that they conquered, uh, they took a, the leaders of those countries and made them what was called native elites. And they were sort of the mediators between the Roman government and the rest of the masses of people. They were collaborators. They would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests and the scribes and people like that. They would have been the native elites. Uh, so you had the emperor, you had 2% Roman ruling class, and you had about 8% native elites. That meant them, they had no middle class in Bible times, like we do in America. That meant 90% of the people were peasants. Jesus was the peasant category. A peasant meant you barely subsisted. You didn't know necessarily where your next meal was coming from. And that was as a result of high taxes. You would have to, like if you were a peasant and had land and Rome came in and conquered, uh, they basically took your land. Now you would work your land and uh, you would uh, give the produce to one of the ruling elites who basically took the land. And then he would take the produce and take it to the marketplace, and you had to buy the produce that you produced. <laughs> and then whatever you had left over was taxed. It was such a high tax that you hardly survived. So <clears throat> this is what we think that Jesus' life was like. It was not a very nice life uh, as he was growing up. So last week we left <laughs> off at verse 39. That's Luke chapter 2 and verse 39. It said, so when they performed these things, that was the circumcision and the different things that happened at the temple when Jesus was eight years old. According to the law, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. Now, if you were reading Luke 2.39, you would think that right after Jesus was baptized and 
the purification service happened about 40 days later, that Mary and Joseph simply head up north about 85 or 86 miles and end up in, back in their hometown. But we know that that didn't happen. And we know that from over in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you just keep your finger here, I want to show you one passage that shows us that Jesus and Mary and Joseph probably stayed in Bethlehem for a period of about two years. In fact, a couple things happened during that period of time. If you look at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, that's down in the south, he was there because of the census, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, look at verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child. Now, look at that. No longer a babe in a manger, no longer in a stable. Uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are living in a house, and they've evidently lived there for a while. The wise men fell down, they worshipped him, and then they opened the treasures and they presented gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. If you look down at verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Now that's not back to Galilee, that's... that's south, Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Remember, Herod went out and killed all the infant boys two years and younger. So they flee to Egypt. Look at verse 14. Then he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Look down at verse 19. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, and he took the young child and his mother, and he came to the land of Israel comes back there into the Jerusalem-Bethlehem area. But when he heard that Archelaus, that was Herod's son, was reigning over Judea instead of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. So he goes up to Galilee, and he came there and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called in Nazareth. So go back to Luke chapter 2, and when you read verse 39 now, it says, So when they had performed all the things according to the law of Moses, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. Luke's leaving out a lot. He's leaving out about two years' worth. Now, we don't know exactly why, but what this tells us is that each gospel writer is selective in the events that he's going to tell about. They don't give you a comprehensive, blow-by-blow -blow description of everything that happens in the life of Christ. Mark deals with a lot less than Luke. Luke leaves out some of the things that Matthew has. Matthew leaves out some of the things that John has, and so on and so forth. They're very selective. 
So verse 39 really covers like a two-year span. Now look at verse 40. And the child grew strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now this is the exact same thing that's said about John the Baptist after he's born in chapter 1 and verse 80. Only Luke adds two things. About Jesus, he says he's filled with wisdom. And second of all, that God's grace is upon Jesus. So Jesus is, grows up as a normal child, but there's a few things that are a little different. He's filled with wisdom, even as a child. And God's grace is upon him, even as a child. Now verse 40, where it says, Jesus grew and became strong, <clears throat> covers the first 12 years of his life. So from the time that he was born, when he was circumcised, to the time of 12, the age of 12, that's what verse 40 covers, okay? Now we're going to fast forward to, chapter, to, verse, to, to, to the age of 12. Now look at verse 41. And his parents went to Jerusalem. Now remember, they're up north in Galilee. Now they're going to come to Jerusalem. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of of the feast. Now, Passover, which was a celebration of the Exodus, was a seven-day affair. It was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The celebration of the Passover, the Exodus, was a one-day event within the seven. And according to the law, every male adult within about a hundred-mile radius had to go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. The wife didn't have to go, the children didn't have to go, but a lot of times families would go together to celebrate it. They would turn it into a family fair, a vacation. It was a time of rejoicing, it was a time of feasting. It was a solemn time on occasion because they would get together with other families around the table and they'd have a Passover meal and they would reflect back on the Exodus, how God delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. Then they would project that same hope into the future, to the day when God would deliver them out of Roman bondage. And they were always looking for a Messiah who was a deliverer. So every year they would come down here to the Passover. And look at verse 43. And when they had finished the days, that would have been that seven-day Passover feast, they returned. As they returned, the boy Jesus, lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Mary and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey. And they sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now what we have here is we have them now going back home going back north. And people in Bible times traveled in caravans. And caravans were very interesting. It's like the old wagon train, but in this case, people didn't have wagons. A lot of times they just walked. Some people were on horses, different conveyances. But the way they would do it was that the women and the little children would walk ahead in the caravan. And so this is how the Jews did it. All their women and children were ahead in the caravan. And the men and the young men 
were in the rear of the caravan. Now, Jesus is 12 years old. He doesn't fit into the category of a little child. He doesn't fit into the category of a young man. And most likely, Mary thinks he's with Joseph. Joseph thinks he's with Mary. And then when they find that he's not there, they start looking amongst relatives and friends, and they can't find him. Now, notice it says they had gone one day's journey. That means they're out one day. And then it said they came back to Jerusalem. How long did that take? One day. Now look at verse 46. Now so it was that after three days they found him. One day out, one day back, one day hunting for him. And look where they found him. They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now this is that famous scene that's depicted in pictures and probably every Sunday school piece of literature that's ever been produced uh, in, throughout the ages. Jesus, as a 12-year-old, in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers. Now, very interesting, there was one commentator said that this passage from verses 40 to 52 has 170 words. Now, I haven't counted this. This is being the Greek text. And he said that the phrase, in the midst of the teachers, is right there in the center of those 170 words, making this the most important verse in this passage. I'm not sure if that's true or not. But when they go, they find him sitting in the midst of the teachers. Now, a lot of famous teachers would come to Jerusalem, and they would stick around after the Passover feast because people from all over Palestine would come, and their students would gather together. This was an annual affair when they many of their students would come together and they would spend some extra time with them. Now notice that Jesus is found where they found him. It says in verse 46, they found him in the temple. This is very important because the temple represented God's presence. Okay? And what was he doing? That's where he was. What was he doing? Listening to them, to the teachers, and asking them questions. So Jesus was doing what all students would have been doing. All students of the rabbis would have been doing. Listening and asking questions. Only there's a difference. He's only 12 years old. Their students were usually 25 years old. 30 years old. So what you have here is you have a kid sitting there listening to the teachers. Now look what else it says. Look at verse 47. And all who heard him, that'd be all the teachers and all the students that were there, probably on a portico in the temple, all who heard him, that's the 12-year-old, were astonished, number one, at his understanding. And number two, at his answers. Now notice, in verse 46, he was asking questions. By verse 47, he's giving answers. So what we have here is a child prodigy. And the rabbis and the teachers that are there, uh, you know, they ask him a question. Or he asks them a question. They give an answer. And then they ask another question. And they give an answer. He asks another question. They can't answer it. And then he gives an answer. 
Or maybe they turn around and ask him. Because rabbis taught oftentimes through questions and answer format. And he gives them answers. And they were astonished. This is a 12-year-old kid. He hasn't even had his bar mitzvah yet. So they're absolutely astonished. The student becomes a teacher. Now look at verse 48. So when they saw him, that's Mary and Joseph, they found him, and they saw him, and they saw what he was doing. Look, they were amazed. They're shocked. They're surprised. They stand there with their mouth hanging open and say, that's our kid? Listen to him. See, they are astonished themselves. Not only were the teachers astonished, his parents were astonished. But notice the astonishment turns from amazement to anger. Verse 48. So they saw him and they were amazed, and then look what happened. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you, why have you done this to us? I mean, that sounds like a typical parent. <laughs> Why have you done this? We're out of our mind. Where were you? You know, they're always, it's like something's happened to them, you know. Why have you done this to us? Now, it's very interesting to me that when you look at this, notice who's doing the speaking in verse 48. It's Mary. Uh, Joseph just stands there. Joseph, this is one thing we know about Joseph when we look at these passages where Joseph is mentioned, he never speaks. Mary's always doing the speaking. So Joseph is probably henpecked, you know. <laughs> well, he's at least a quiet type. Joseph is a quiet type. We'll say that much. And then look what she says at the end of verse 48. She says, look. <laughs> That's great. Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. <laughs> You had us out of our wits, you know. We didn't know what had happened. Did somebody kidnap you? you can... Look, you've said that to your kids, haven't you? I remember one day that uh, a friend of mine and I got on our bicycles, and we, we rode on our bicycles from one end of Baltimore to the other end of Baltimore because we wanted to go visit my aunt. This shows you my mentality. My aunt who lived, you know, I live way out near the edge of the, near the county, and my aunt lives near the Baltimore Memorial Stadium where the, old, where the Baltimore Orioles played, which was miles away. You know, seven, eight, nine miles away. So we're on our bikes going, didn't tell anybody. You know why we went there? Because my aunt always had Pepsi in the refrigerator. <laughs> we didn't have any money. We wanted to get a, to get a free Pepsi. <laughs> so when I got home, guess what? My mother sounded just like Mary. She said the exact same thing. She was astonished. <laughs> All right. So what happens is that her anxiousness turns to anger. And then look what he says. He said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now here are two related questions. The first question is a question of surprise. Why did you seek me? The second is a question that's obvious. 
Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? You should have known this. What were you thinking? Now, so notice that the first one is a question of surprise. Why did you seek me? Well, you know, if he was lost, obviously you'd know. See, that should be an obvious question. You shouldn't be asking that question. Why did you seek me? Why did we seek you? What do you think? It's been three days. We haven't seen you. Why did you seek me? <laughs> See, but it's not. It's why did you seek me? It's a question of surprise. He's surprised. And then he says, you should have known something. You should have expected this. Now, what should they expect? It depends on how the end of verse 49 is translated, and we have two options. This is very difficult. Like the New Revised Standard Version translates it this way. Did you not know I must be about my father's house? That's the first translation. And some, some translations have it that way. Didn't you know I must be about or in the midst of my father's house? In other words, why did you have to go looking all over the city and spend the whole day hunting for me? It should have been obvious where I was going to be. I would be in my father's house. See, that's option number one. Option number two is the way we have it in our New King James Bible, I must be about my father's business. In that case, he says, you know, why did you seek me? You should have known I should have been about my father's business. And again, the thing is, and if I'm about my father's business, I'm going to be in the temple. So you shouldn't have had to go looking all over for me. So the bottom line is that they should, he's surprised that they didn't know where to find him. They should have expected him to be here because the angel talked about what he was going to do. He was going to you know, be the redeemer of Israel and all these kinds of things. They should have known this. Anna and Simeon confirmed that he had a special place in history and redeeming Israel. If they can't find him and they go back to Jerusalem, where would be the first place that they should have looked? Well, they should have looked in the temple. And that's where they found him, but it took them a long time to get there. That was the last place they looked. It was the, should have been the first place they looked. That's, I guess, what we're saying. But either way, they were caught off guard. <clears throat> Why were they caught off guard? Most likely because Jesus was a normal 12-year-old child. And where do you think he's going to be if you left him behind? He's probably hunting for some people that he knows in the city, trying to find something to eat, maybe playing with a bunch of kids out on the street. The last place they're thinking is the temple, because he grew up just a normal 12-year-old, but things are going to change, and they're going to realize it very quickly right here. Now, I want you to notice two things about verse 49. First of all, notice how he describes his relationship with God. He calls God his father. He starts understanding that he has a relationship as a son to a father, and that God is his father, and he is... God the Father's Son. That was very unusual. Jews did not look to God as a father. So the fact that he says that God's his father, that was very unusual. That should have pricked their ears. Okay? They would have, that should have caused them to go, hmm, I wonder what that means. God's father. They didn't understand God as father. That was not common. Okay? Second thing I want you to notice, notice is the necessity. Look at verse 49. Look at the word must. Did you not know that I, look at this, 
must be about my father's business or I must be in my father's house. It was of a divine necessity. Everything Jesus does in his life is a must. From this point on, every time he's mentioned, everything he does is a must. He must preach in certain cities. He must suffer. He must heal. He must die. He must go to Zacchaeus' house. Everything's a must. It's not optional. When we talk about God's will, Pastor talked about God's will, Jesus was right in the center of God's will. Everything he did, he knew what he was supposed to do, and therefore he must do it. He must suffer, he must die, he must be resurrected. So Jesus was appointed to do this, and that's how he sees it. Okay? It was a must. So his allegiance had to be to the Father and what the Father wanted him to do. So the parents said, it's time to go home. God said, no, you must go to my house. And somehow that was conveyed to Jesus, and we don't understand how, but he saw it as a necessity. His allegiance, therefore, superseded, to God, superseded his allegiance to his parents. And let me tell you, that's where our allegiance needs to be as well. We need to obey God rather than man if we have a choice. If the choices conflict, we need to obey God rather than man. I've counseled with women who said, my husband won't let me go to church. You know, most people say, oh, then just obey your husband. I say, tell him to hang on his feet, you're going to church. <laughs> See? Because in this case, that's what God says you should do, no matter what he says. So when you have that kind of con- conflict, then you obey God rather than man. Now, that's not always. There's not always, you know, sometimes that the... What someone wants you to do is not contradictory to God. But we should always give our allegiance to God first. Now look at verse 50. Verse 50. By the way, this in verse 49, this is the first active role that Jesus has in the Gospel of Luke. In other words, he's actually doing something on his own. Okay. That's important. Up until this time, people were doing things for him or to him. These are his first words spoken. So... In Luke, these will be the first words that are in red in Luke's gospel. So I would say the first thing Jesus says would be pretty important. Just like the last thing that he says would be pretty important. And his first words are that he must be about his father's business. And he'll never deviate from that. He's always about his father's business. Now look at verse 50. But they, that's Mary and Joseph, did not understand the statement which he had spoken to them. In other words, they're confused. Notice how verse 50 opens. It opens with what? But. Jesus said something, but they don't get it. See, they're confused. Even though he said, look, you should have come here first. You should have known I would be about my father's business. That's what the angel said I'd be doing. And Anna and Simeon confirmed it. I have to give my allegiance to the Father. God's my Father. I'm His Son. They didn't get it. But they didn't understand. They didn't understand the statement which He spoke to them. So there's that contrast. Why? Because in verse 40, Jesus is filled with wisdom. And they're not filled with wisdom. They're still operating on a purely human level, but God's wisdom is coming into Jesus, and He's speaking words that are very difficult to understand. Now look at verse 51. <coughs> 
Then he went down with them and he came to Nazareth. And he was subject to them. <coughs> Which means he's obedient to them. Which means that when he, went to the, when he went to the temple, that wasn't an act of disobedience. He was obedient to God in that case, but normally he's going to be subject to his parents. Now the fact that he's going to be subject to his parents in verse 51 means that his public ministry has not yet been launched. Even though we see him a little, we get a, an idea of what he did in this one situation when he's 12 years old, he's not ready to launch out publicly and redeem Israel. He's going to be under the authority of his parents. So that's, ways, that's Luke's way of saying, well, he wasn't ready to launch out into a public ministry yet. Now look at verse 50, at the end of 51. He was subject to them, but, there it is again, look. But his mother kept all of these things in her heart. Now, does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar because... When we look back at chapter 2 and verse 19, for example, look at that. Chapter 19 and verse, chapter 2 and verse 19. But Mary kept all of these things in her heart. Remember that? Mary. That's, a, that's nearly a, a quote, isn't it? Mary, Mary kept all of these things in her heart. What things? All the things that the shepherds had said the angel had said about her son. See? Look back at chapter 1 and verse 29. Chapter 1 and verse 29. And this is where the angel Gabriel speaks to her. And it says that she was troubled when she saw him. And then he's saying, but she considered what manner of greeting this was. And she lingered on the sayings of the angel. And that's what Mary does here in chapter 2 and verse 51. She considers, she starts thinking about all these things. She start, wonders, what does this mean? She kept all these things in her heart. Didn't go around talking to people. She just said, I wonder what it means that he's the son of the highest. I wonder what it means, because these were all things that we find in chapters 1 and 2. I wonder what it means that he's going to be the ruler, rule on the throne of David. I wonder what it means that of his kingdom there will be no end as the angel Gabriel said. I wonder what it means that he's the consolation of Israel, as Simeon said. I wonder what it means that he's the redeemer of Israel. I wonder what it means that God's his father and he's his son. I wonder what it means that he must be about his father's business. She's thinking through this, and she just goes over this, and this is the thing that's constantly on Mary's mind. Now look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now this verse, 52, is very similar to verse 40. But there's a difference. Verse 40, the child grew and became strong in spirit, so on and so forth, covers the years from his birth to the age of 12. Verse 52 covers the age from 12 to when he launches out in his public ministry. Look what it says in 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So verses 40 and verse 52 
serve as brackets around this entire section. That's why we divided it this way. Some people say, why did you stop at verse 39 last week? Because verses 40 and verse 52 serve as brackets around this section. And verse 40 tells us what his life was like, how he grew from, 12, from 0 to 12, and verse 52 tells how he grew from 12 to the age of about 30. Now the important word in verse 52 is the word increased. He increased in wisdom. That's a word that's uh, it's a picture word. It describes the way a person advances through great effort and difficulty. It's like you want to get from point A to point B, but between you, there's this jungle and there's this brush. And so to get from point A to point B, guess what you have to do to advance? You have to cut down that brush with the sickle. See? And it's takes, it talks about, you know, effort. It talks about agony. And so Jesus, in a sense, is advancing uh, in a way that's abnormal, not the way a normal person grows up. So, he increases, first of all, in wisdom. That's intellectually. Now, he had wisdom at the age of 12. We saw what his wisdom was like at the age of 12. Can you imagine what his wisdom was like at the age of 28? So he grows up intellectually. And in stature, look at that, physically. He increased physically. He grows into manhood. <clears throat> Next, he increased in favor with God. He grew spiritually. And he increased in favor with man. He grew socially. So here's fourfold. He increases intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. And Jesus is our example. Just as he grew, we should be growing. How did he grow? Well, verse 52 says he growed, grew intellectually. That's our thought life. What do we put in our minds? How are we growing? How are we growing our mind? What do we read? What do we listen to? You know, most of us in this room are older and we need to have that gray matter, get those Deep grooves in that grave man. Should never stop growing intellectually. And then it says he grew in stature. He grew physically. We're to grow physically. God created our bodies. And when he created us, he said it was good. We need to be very careful what we put in our bodies. Not only what we put in our minds intellectually, what we put in our bodies. We should be in tip-top shape. The older you get, the more you need to be in tip-top shape. Be able to fight off the diseases and fight off the illnesses and the ailments that come at our age. And then, favor with God, spiritually. When God created man, he breathed into him the breath of life. Made him a spiritual being. We should be growing spiritually on a regular basis. We should be in God's presence. And... We should grow socially. When God created man, he said it's not good that man should be alone. The animals were not good enough. Some of you have animals. You love your animals. That's great. But guess what? Animals are not enough. The pastor will talk about animals being in heaven. The important thing, people being in heaven. <laughs> animals are okay. But that cannot be your only companion. 
We are social beings. He's created us for community. That's why a Sunday school class like ours is so important. We need to have good relationships with other people. Always have good relationships. Jesus grew in favor with people. It didn't matter who those people were. The only people Jesus didn't get along with were people who wanted to kill him. <laughs> but he got along with prostitutes. He got along with all kinds of sinners. The common people heard him out. Gladly. He found favor with them. We should always find favor with people. We shouldn't be fighters. We're Sometimes Christians have this fighting mentality. Like, we're always mad at somebody. We should, we should be such gracious and winsome people. If we, you know, if we would follow what Jesus said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, well, how would I want that person to treat me? And we did that. And if we loved our neighbors ourselves, we'd be finding favor with all kinds of people. Amen. But people want to stay away from Christians, especially people who are called Baptist Christians. Because they see us always as fighting. So Jesus becomes our example. He and we need to increase in wisdom, stature, favor with God spiritually and socially. Now this next section, chapter 3, goes back to John the Baptist. Remember I said it starts with John? There's John, Jesus, John, Jesus, John, Jesus, John, Jesus. Now it goes back to John... And John is going to launch his public ministry. And then that's what we'll see next week. And then guess what? Jesus launches his public ministry. And you're going to see that. And it goes back and forth for these first three chapters. That's where we'll stop. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that we can uh, look at your word, that we can get a sense of what Jesus' life was like when he was young, that uh, he was normal. He, in, as a child, he obeyed his parents but he advanced Lord much differently than we did it was it was supernatural advancement but Lord like Jesus we must be about our father's business help us to to, uh, to take that lesson with us home help us to be about your business Help us to be surprised when people don't realize that that's what we, we're about. Oh, you were in church today? Lord, help us to be people that manifest your love to others. Help us to grow intellectually. Help us to grow physically and be strong because you created our bodies and you're going to resurrect our bodies and we're to be healthy Christians. Help us to grow spiritually keep a close relationship with you help us to have favor with people in jesus name we pray amen, amen. <laughs>